Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is Friday, November 3rd. Hey, we're a 10th through November, more or less. Thanksgiving's around the corner. Halloween is over, so you know what that means. It is Christmas time. Curious, what do you guys think? Like, when is the beginning of Christmas music, when is it acceptable? Are you one of the people that, you know, November 1st hits and we can start celebrating Christmas, Hanukkah, all of the above? Or do you need to wait a little bit? I'm kind of where I don't really want to see the holiday car commercials or all of that jazz, the Christmas songs, the decorations. I don't really want to see any of them till maybe mid-November at the earliest or even Thanksgiving. But I think I turned on the news or something on November 1st, and it's already the Toyota holiday car deals and all that. And I'm just like, shit, like, not ready. Not ready yet, okay? It it was 60-something degrees today. Played some pickleball outside. It's beautiful. The leaves are still changing. They're still on the trees. I'm I'm not ready for Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever you celebrate yet. I'm just not. Anyways, a lot of heavy topics we're going to talk about today. I want to talk about rising anti-Semitism, a warning out of Ukraine about this maybe being a stalemate coming from pretty much the commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian army. I also want to talk about why I don't think a ceasefire between the Palestinian, or I mean, but between Hamas and Israel is a good idea, why I don't think it'll work. So lots of happy topics. But first, I guess this somewhat relates to what I'm going to talk about in a bit. But you guys remember Jared Kushner, the guy with the voice of an angel, and by angel, I don't even know, kind of a vampire type of voice. But anyways, he does a interview with Maria Bartiromo on Fox Business or News, I don't even know. Uh, she's the one that's never seen a conspiracy theory she doesn't like. But anyway, Jared, Jared Kushner, you know, talks about his trip. I guess he was in Saudi Arabia again recently, and uh, he talks about how Jews are now safer in Saudi Arabia than in the United States. And it's an insane thing, but let's just hear it. This is kind of a palate cleanser, but it's also just insane. I don't know. Let's just listen. Least with those normalized relations with Israel, you're just back from Saudi Arabia. What did you hear from the leadership in terms of potentially joining the pact, joining the Abraham Accords, despite this war? Yeah, so it was a very interesting time to be over there, and I've been there many times before. Uh, one of the ironies is that uh, as an American Jew, you're safer in Saudi Arabia right now than you are on a college campus like Columbia University. Um, I spoke at the conference. They allowed me to speak freely. And uh, what I sensed there was that there's obviously a very uh, big uh, disgust at what happened uh, with this uh, tremendous terrorist attack uh, perpetrated by Hamas. Uh, the people of Saudi Arabia have a lot of care for the Palestinian civilians. <laughs> Anyways, I mean, I could go on. I watched the whole clip. It's like almost three minutes. I've talked about the Abraham Accords before, normalizing trade between Israel and countries like Bahrain, potentially Saudi Arabia. A lot of people think this is why Hamas did the attack on October 7th, or at least one of the reasons, because basically the United States was helping Israel normalize trade with other countries, but again pushed Palestine out of any negotiations, any trade It lacked the understanding that if you want peace in the Middle East, you're going to have to allow Palestine, Gaza, West Bank to be part of trade negotiations. And the Abraham Accords, again, just kind of cut Palestine out. So I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole today. But basically what Jared Kushner is doing here is he's defending the Abraham Accords, saying, look at all the peace it created. Best best deal ever. The Saudis are so welcoming. And... (laughs) The statement to say that Jews are safer in Saudi Arabia, 
excuse me, Saudi Arabia than in the United States is just insane. Look, I'm going to talk about it later, but it's there is no doubt that anti-Semitism is 100% on the rise. It is very troubling what happened in places like Dagestan, even in the United States. No doubt about it. But, I mean, we're even seeing potential pogroms, all, all of that type of stuff. But <laughs> to say, I mean, in Saudi Arabia, you speak out against MBS or the royal family, you end up in prison or worse. This is a guy who literally locked up his own mother, put all of his family in the Ritz-Carlton to seize power. Ben Hubbard has a great book, MBS, The Rise to Power of, of Mohammed bin Salman. And it, and it really actually brings up some interesting points about how MBS and Jared Kushner, in a sense, kind of saw, saw themselves in each other, and they really did develop a good relationship. And so, you know, Jared talks about how, oh, I could speak freely there, I was welcome there. It's because the guy has made like a billion dollars off of working with the Saudi government. They're, they're friends, they're allies. Of course, he's welcome there. But it's just such an out-of-touch taste. Like the average, like progressive liberal Jew would not be welcome in Saudi Arabia. But a very wealthy son-in-law of the president of the United States, yeah, yeah, you're going to be welcome in Saudi Arabia, no doubt. And so it's just an insane take. And I, I just look at these like he was, he was, he, he was back from another trip in Saudi Arabia. You know, everyone talks about Hunter Biden so frequently. But, I mean, Jared Kushner is the one that raises all the red flags to me just about his profits and still profits off of Saudi Arabia, which is, again, an, an autocratic regime, and that's lightly putting it. But we'll move on. I just wanted to play that uh, clip because it just kind of triggered me watching it. I'm just going, Jesus, man. And, of course, Maria Bartiromo nods along, loves what she's hearing. You guys know the rest. Moving on, though. I guess, I guess we'll maybe talk about the ceasefire after, but maybe we'll just talk about the rises in anti-Semitism since we're already on that topic. And I have seen this even in my own life, uh, people on my Instagram feed posting, you know, like the swastika with the Israeli colors. I, I, I had another friend on there post, I guess at a soccer game, it, it said, fuck the hipsters, meaning, you know, they're, they're calling Israelis hipsters now and Hamas freedom fighters. And yeah, I mean, it's, I see it in my own life on social media that there's a growing disdain for just not the Israeli government, but the Israeli people. And again, I've talked about this on the podcast before. You can hate Netanyahu. I hate Netanyahu. His coalition government is dangerous, illiberal, borderline fascist. But to then basically say all Israelis don't deserve to live there and all Israelis are bad, it's no worse than Netanyahu or it's no better, sorry, than Netanyahu basically saying all Palestinians are Hamas, right? This is that ex existential genocidal rhetoric that is not good. And, you know, we're seeing from college campuses to what happened in Dagestan, just rising attacks on the Jewish community. And I, I think probably the main reason here is that there is genuine and understandable anger over what the Netanyahu government is doing in Palestine, right? The bombardment of Gaza, a lot of civilian deaths, like, you know, they kill one Hamas leader for like 50 people. And unfortunately, what this is doing, though, is it's invoking a really dark justification for physical aggression, verbal aggression and hate towards Jews in general around the world. And it's just, if, if you don't see how that rhymes throughout history, then you just don't follow history. And it's, it's really troubling. And I mean, I was even looking, I think it was in Florida, was it? You have you have marches of like these national socialist movements, which <laughs> the national socialists, not great. Yeah, they're called Nat Sock. 
um, a white nationalist group. Um, they're protesting the U.S. government for support for Israel. It's, it's all over the world, but I wanted to kind of take us through a depressing tour of how bad it is. Reuters notes here in quotes, Authorities and civil society groups in many countries have reported a surge in anti-Semitism since the October 7th attack by Hamas on southern Israel and subsequent bombardment of the Gaza Strip by the Israeli military. So first, let's look at the United States, since, you know, that's where I'm recording from. The Anti-Defamation League reported last week that anti-Semitic attacks and incidents had, ri- had risen by 400% following October 7th. One example was there was a man screaming, free Palestine and kill Jews, and he attempted to and almost did break into a Jewish family's home in L.A. on October 25th. Karen Bass, L.A.'s mayor, who I am not a fan of, she did the right thing here, though, and has stepped up patrols in more Jewish-centered communities in Los Angeles. That's just one example. I've talked about the college campus stuff, so we won't talk about that right now. But then you also, in Canada, have PM Justin Trudeau. He spoke on October 17th, in quotes, about a scary rise in anti-Semitism in Canada, citing attacks and incidents at Jewish high schools in Toronto, as well as inflammatory language online. I've seen some of that inflammatory language online. Going to the UK, Reuters notes, London's police force said there had been a 14-fold increase in incidents of anti-Semitism. The Community Security Trust, which basically puts together these reports of anti-Semitism, (laughs) this is lovely, said the number of incidents in the three weeks following the attack was the highest for any three-week period since it started collecting data in 1984. France. Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin said on Monday that since October 7th, there had been 819 attacks. Apparently in 2022, according to Reuters, there were only 436 for the whole year. So almost doubled in just the last three weeks all of 22's numbers combined. And then, of course, I'm sure you guys have heard about this. I I heard about this when I was flying back from L.A. Didn't have time to talk about it, but we had pretty much an almost pogrom event. Um, Pogroms are, I I think you could call it a violent riot, kind of attempting to expel a specific group. Pogroms happened a lot uh, in the 19th, 20th centuries, kind of in the Russian Empire and Eastern Europe, a lot of people think that the pogroms that happened in Poland in the 19, early 1920s were kind of a precursor to the Holocaust. So lovely stuff, right? Really, really dark stuff, honestly. But in Russia, basically an angry mob, crowd, whatever you want to call it, stormed an airport in the Dagestan region searching for Jews. And basically what happened was there was a flight that arrived from Tel Aviv of Jewish refugees, and they stormed the airport and then went into the hotel where they were going to stay looking to kill them. Yeah, I mean, basically. And I I talked about this before, but in Egypt, you had Jewish tourists shot, I think it was a few days after October 7th. And then, of course, there's just the social media and people equating just their classmates and friends and anyone who supports the state of Israel into this just encompassing term of Netanyahu's government being bad. And, and then all, you know, also saying Zionism is genocidal. By the way, um, one of my main focuses in undergrad was you know, the Palestine-Israeli conflict and the history of Zionism. Zionism is not one thing. So just a lesson to all you guys. If you see people posting online about how Zionism is always genocidal and colonial, 
it, it, there's like 15, 20 different branches of Zionism. You have left-leaning Zionists, you have right-leaning, you have socialists, you have communal Zionists. Like, it's not just one term describing everything. It's a movement that started in like Eastern Europe in the 1800s as kind of a way to form an is, is, or a Jewish-Israeli identity. So anyways, very dark stuff though, and I don't see it getting much better. And I mean, I should also note that, and I've talked about it before, Unfortunately, this is one of those conflicts that is so polarizing and so divisive that also we're seeing a huge rise in Islamophobia. I've, I've seen that a lot in the United States as well. I've talked about him before. Ben Wittes works with Brookings, Lawfare. Uh, he, he also has a blog, Dog Shirt Daily. Really smart guy. I'm a big fan of him. He's the one that shines uh, spotlights into the Russian embassy in D.C. Very pro-Ukraine. But anyways, he has an article... Shoot, what's it called? I just had it in front of me here. It's called How to Tell if You're an Anti or if You're a Left-Wing Anti-Semite. And I think he brings up some interesting things that maybe ask yourself. Um, he says, like, have you referred to Hamas fighters as our martyrs? Have you expressed the sentiment that Palestine must be free from the river to the sea? He gets into how <laughs> the history of that statement is all you really need to look into. He said, Do you find yourself radically more engaged by the plight of Palestinians injured or killed in Gaza? Then the massacre of Israeli civilians, kill, uh, and then the, then by the okay, sorry, let me start that one over. He says, "Do you find yourself radically more engaged by the plight of Palestinians displaced, injured, or killed in Gaza, in response to a massacre of Israeli civilians, than by the millions of Syrians displaced, wounded, or killed in the murderous war by the Syrian government?" Give yourself ten points. Anyways, he he goes on. There's some interesting ones. I like I, I like question ten. Do you interpret the Biden administration's support for Israel as evidence of Jewish political power in the United States? Give yourself five points for a soft yes, 10 points for an empath emphatic yes. And I mean, that's a whole other one too, is I, I've heard that argument from a lot of people as well. But, but anyways, I, I, think, I think what I just need to specify is it's okay to think that, which I, I, which I agree with, that in the West Bank, Israeli settlements are violating international law. I think it's okay to believe that. I think it's okay to believe Netanyahu's government needs to go. It's radical and it's impeding any chance for a two-state or one-state solution where everyone lives together. I think you could, you could criticize the IDF and its responses to this attack. But if you think that Israel just can't respond or Hamas are the victors, the martyrs, and that they were killing hipsters, or if you think the Israelis should not even be there at all, and you think all Israelis are Netanyahu's government, I think it's time to look in the mirror. Or if you say Biden's administration is only supporting Israel because of the money and Israeli power, then that's just an old trope. And I heard someone a few weeks ago that I know saying that the only reason we care about Israel is because they have money. Like all of these tropes are dangerous and we see it on the far left and the far right right now. And it's, it's getting to be some of the worst stuff I've seen in a long time. And it's really too bad to see. What do we do? <laughs> I don't particularly know. But I think we just need to have a sense of humility and understand that Hamas is bad. The Netanyahu government needs more restraint. But two things can be true at once when also remembering that all Palestinians are not Hamas and all Israelis are not, or, and, and the Jewish community in general, are not reflective of some of the atrocities that we're seeing on both sides of this. And that's, that's all we can do and we need to be more, and, and, and maybe get off social media too, because that's, that's where the most toxic shit is happening. Moving on, um, getting into kind of updates actually on the ground. Antony Blinken, America's Secretary of State, obviously, 
he um, he's really urging Israel to implement a series of humanitarian pauses. And this was when he was meeting, I think it was today, maybe yesterday by the time you hear this, with uh, top officials in Tel Aviv. And <laughs> Netanyahu, again, said that ceasefire was conditional on Hamas releasing hostages. One thing to note here, humanitarian pauses are different from ceasefires. For example, I'm against a ceasefire. I am for humanitarian pauses. The problem is Netanyahu is wrapped up in just, I think, trying to save face by just unifying the nation against a a common enemy, which is troubling in a lot of ways. And, And I don't see any of that being good for the state of the country. But basically, the United States is in a really tough situation because right now we are pretty much seen as the main ally of Israel, the one that's helped fund a lot of these attacks. And we are urging them to at least get humanitarian aid in there. And Netanyahu is just not playing ball. And I do worry that the longer we stick with this and don't add more pressure or at least put some sort of limits on the money and aid we give them unless they do get aid in there, this is going to be bad for us internationally and domestically. What I mean here is that it's going to be hard to get a lot of the the world to rally with us behind Ukraine. And it's going to be hard for the United States to say we have soft power. We are upholding the international law by keeping Putin out of Russia, I mean, out of Ukraine, because right now we are kind of letting a radical Netanyahu government do do pretty bad shit. And then also on the domestic front, Biden didn't win by that many votes in the swing states. Right now, he's not popular with the young left which in a, in a sense I don't give a shit about because the young left is insane. But in Michigan, huge Muslim population, Rashida Tlaib from there, obviously, they're all pretty pro-Palestine. You have to wonder if a lot of young people just don't vote. So right now, the American government's in a really tough place. I think they need to keep pushing for humanitarian pauses, humanitarian aid getting into the country, and basically say, We are not going to help you financially or give you any weapons unless you get aid in there and make sure you at least try not to target a refugee camp if there's potentially one Hamas person there, which is insane to me. And I think Congressman Richie Torres, I think he's from New York, Democrat, I think he had a really good tweet or X, whatever we're going to call it. He had a really good one. Let me read it. He said in quotes, a humanitarian response to the plight of Palestinians in Gaza is morally necessary. But there is nothing remotely humanitarian about keeping Hamas in power. A ceasefire is an open invitation for Hamas to rearm itself and launch a deadlier terror attack. A ceasefire is not a peace agreement. It is a death sentence for Israelis. And that's kind of what I want to talk about here because The Economist also says a ceasefire is the enemy of peace because it would allow Hamas to continue to rule over Gaza by consent or by force with most of its weapons and fighters intact. A lot of the humanitarian aid hasn't got in, but I've read reports that Hamas has stockpiled medical gear, fuel, water. Shit's going to hit the fan if something like cholera starts happening in Gaza, for example. And obviously we need to get aid into there. But it just seems like a ceasefire would only be upheld by by the Israelis and, and the American allies of Israel, right? And... And the thing here is I was watching the spokesman for Hamas out of his suite in, in uh, Qatar, 
basically say, no, we're going to keep attacking, we're going to keep fighting until we destroy Israel. So when you see videos like that, from the land to the sea, that is what they still want to do. And obviously there are arguments to be had about, is Israel making this worse? Is Israel radicalizing these people even more? Probably yes. I would, I would lean towards yes. But a ceasefire would just mean Israel doesn't respond and Hamas just regains energy and has most of its weapons and attacks. So I've said since the beginning, Israel has a right to respond. But this is where you need to send in special forces. Don't carpet bomb. Don't just completely decimate Gaza City or refugee camps or ambulances. And the problem here, like one of the things that I do think is bad is that the Gaza Hamas health ministry, which I mean, take it, take it for what you want. It said scores of Palestinians were killed or injured by an Israeli strike on an ambulance convoy carrying wounded people. And Israel's army confirmed the attack and they claimed that one ambulance was being used by a Hamas terrorist cell. Okay, so if there's like a convoy of 10, one maybe is a terrorist cell. I don't, those numbers aren't going to help your cause. And like we need to find some way to, to understand that you can't just blow the shit out of everything when Hamas is mainly underground, right? Like, I mean, over 8,000 Palestinians have been killed, many of them children. There's shortages of clean water and food. Obviously, Israel has a blockade. Many more are going to die. I, I sympathize with arguments I've, I've seen in articles talking about how a lot of Palestinians and a lot of people had to join Hamas because Hamas runs every bureaucracy, if you want to call it that, inside of the area. So, of course, they need to get a job and support their families. So, yeah, they're going to take a job with Hamas, even if they don't agree with it. Not everyone in Hamas agrees with the movement. Now, the people leading Hamas, yes. The fighters, yes. Like, and, and so it gets to be a very complicated situation here. But a ceasefire just means Hamas gets centralized again, regroups, rearms, and fights again. And... Yes, Israel must minimize casualties, but I think The Economist has a good piece on why getting rid of Hamas is important and why Hamas is an existential threat to Israel and why a war is kind of inevitable here to take out Hamas. Yes, again, remember, I, I want us to minimize casualties. I think everyone wants to minim minimize casualties, right? But anyways, The Economist article writes here in quotes, even if Israel chooses to honor the responsibilities and a ceasefire, the only path to peace lies in dramatically reducing Hamas's capacity to use Gaza as a source of supplies and a base for its army. Tragically, that requires war. The article also says, because of pogroms and the Holocaust, Israel has a unique social contract to create a land where Jews know they will not be killed or persecuted for being Jews, the state has long honored that promise with a strategic doctrine that calls for deterrence, early warnings of an attack, protection on the home front, and decisive Israeli victories. By the way, the Netanyahu government has failed on all of those. But they've also created, I think, a situation that is very complicated. And I'll get into a minute why I think it's obvious that leadership needs to change, whether it's in the West Bank, Gaza, Israel... But what I'll also note is I'm not trying to justify like why Israel is on the offensive after this attack, but what, 
like it's a really complicated state that exists in a very hostile part of the world. And basically everyone in the region has some sort of disdain for them. And basically you have to con consolidate a social contract about protecting people and be w being willing to strike back if necessary. And so when everyone's been after you for so long, you are going to be quite hostile and ready to jump on anything. And I would argue the same goes with the Palestinians. There's been a lot of death on their side as well caused by the Israelis. And so it's created basically a very troubling game of chicken. That, and neither one is budging right now. And I mean, I, I would hope, I mean, I, I think one of the, if I was in the government trying to work on this right now, I would say a hostage swap would be one of the first steps. Wouldn't be politically popular, but it would be necessary. Getting though to leadership, it's clear that Israel has lost sight of the, the idea, the concept that the Palestinians need a, need a place as well, need a state, need a country. And we see that with these illegal settlements that keep growing. Um, the IDF sometimes supports these illegal, illegal settlement, settlements, geez, I can't speak, literally going in with these settlers. And that's not good. And I've also talked about this before. Netanyahu has boosted, bolstered Hamas to basically sabotage the moderates. And it's literally just a cynical way to basically have him go in front of the people and argue that there's no peace. And I think Netanyahu, there's a lot of blame on him for this whole situation because he never really wanted peace and he never really wanted a two-state solution in a lot of ways. Instead, it's easier to demonize and to say, well, Hamas is not a good actor, so we can't negotiate with them. And because of that, I think Netanyahu has failed his people. But the Palestinians also need moderate leaders with some sort of democratic mandate, and there's none. Obviously, I said Netanyahu boosted. Here's Syria again. Um, obviously, I said Netanyahu boosted Hamas, but Mahmoud Abbas, president of the Palestinian Authority, has become somewhat of an autocrat as well. I mean, he was around even in the Oslo Accords and in the Madrid. Um, Madrid conference in the late 80s, early 90s. This guy's been around for a long time and nothing's been done. He sidelines potential rivals. A lot of Palestinians see him as just another arm of Israel as well. Like there needs to be change. And whether that's an Islamic state, some sort of fundamentalist Islamic state or an actual democracy, it's really hard. It's really hard. But I think a one state solution with a moderate coalition is obviously my dream seems very idealistic, seems very unrealistic right now. But at the end of the day, I think it's the only thing that can work. But of course, there needs to be security in Gaza, right? So that's why Israel needs to, needs to take out Hamas. I don't think a lot of people, well, other than the radicals, think that that's not part of this. And also, if they can take out Hamas, and maybe the government moderates, Israel could provide security in Gaza. But this would also require a pluralistic democracy, also Israelis treating Palestinians not as second-class citizens, but as their friends, their equals, Palestinians not thinking all Jews are bad. I mean, also Egypt at the same time would need to, I think, welcome refugees and also change its stances towards Palestine, which are also not great. It's really complicated, but I think a lot of the leadership, a lot of the people involved are the problem here. 
And that's why I, I just want to like facepalm every time I go on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and just see horrible takes where it's one side. This is an issue that's been going on for a very long time. And I think leadership is part of the problem. You know, in, in Madrid, it was seen as an important conference because at least it was a symbolic meeting done between the Israelis and the Palestine, uh, Palestinians. Even the Soviet Union was there. This was under H.W. Bush. It was seen as a time where there was a willingness to talk. Oslo, they actually brought out some sort of land agreements, Camp David Accords down the road. But at the end of the day, it's worse now than it was then because I don't think you could get a Palestinian leader in the same room with a Netanyahu type of figure. And that's what needs to change. But I just get exhausted when people are calling for these ceasefires because I just don't think that's the answer right now. Unfortunately, of course. Speaking of another unfortunate situation, I want to move away because I haven't really talked about Ukraine in a while. Not a lot of good news to report. Now, this is going to be a hot take, but I think it's something I do want to mention, is that right now we have Mike Johnson, House Speaker, Radical, talking about how he wants to decouple aid between, you know, Israel and Ukraine. And I was thinking about this on my run earlier. I was like, to me, the Ukrainian cause actually seems more straightforward than what's happening in the Middle East right now. Like, you have an invading aggressor, and Ukraine's just trying to maintain its country's territories and keep its people safe. 20,000 kids have been abducted and taken to Russia. Like, you're, you're seeing an attempted extermination of the Ukrainian language and people, right? And obviously, in Israel, it's complex. It's, this, is a, this is centuries of hatred. And obviously, Hamas is awful. But it gets complicated when you see the leveling. Like, 10% of Gaza City is now leveled, right? It gets complicated. So to me, it's easy to send money to help the Zelensky government it's more difficult to ask the Israelis, like, where are the weapons going, right? But anyways, it's not going well. It's really not going too well in Ukraine. The Economist writes here, Russia launched its biggest drone strike on Ukraine in weeks, targeting sites across the country. Ukraine's Air Force said it had shot down 24 of the 40 drones. Some infrastructure was hit, including a military facility in the western region of ivano Franvichik. Meanwhile, a Kremlin spokesperson said that the conflict had not reached a stalemate. This is why I wanted to read that quote, is because The Economist had an interview with Ukraine's top general, Valery Zeluzhi, and he said that it was reaching a stalemate. So it's kind of interesting that he says it's a stalemate, the Russians are saying it's not. I don't, I mean, I, I'm not on the ground, I don't particularly know which one to believe, but it does sound like it's becoming more of a stall, more of a stalemate. Obviously, also with the Western focus now on what's happening in the Middle East, it does seem like a stalemate. And to add something to the stalemate rhetoric, Ukraine has managed to advance 17 kilometers during their counteroffensive, not much like they did right in the first days of the invasion in 2022. And <laughs> another example on the other side, Russia fought, what, 10 months around Bakhmut? just to get like a town that's six kilometers by maybe seven kilometers. Like these battles are becoming very entrenched, very brutal, but they're not actually gaining or losing much. And that's why I think if you're a Kremlin spokesperson, you're like, yeah, I don't want this to look like a stalemate. We don't want to put that out to the public that it's a stalemate. 
but it kind of sounds like a stalemate. And anyways, why I bring this up is that The Economist actually had a really interesting interview with General Valery Zaluzhny. I hope I'm pronouncing that name correctly. And he gives a pretty damning assessment of the campaign. Nothing I wanted to read, but I did. And he says the battlefield reminds him of World War I, as he calls it, the great conflict of a century ago. He says here in quotes, Just like in the First World War, we have reached the level of technology that puts us into a stalemate. He also concludes that it would take a massive technological leap to break the deadlock. He says later, there will most likely be no deep and beautiful breakthrough. That's sad, guys. I I don't like to hear. I don't like to read that. I don't like to hear that. Also, American support for the war is creeping down more and more. Hearing this is not going to be helpful. And I think this was a fear that the Ukrainians have had for a long time, whether you like Vladimir Zelensky or not. I think this is why he was doing his, no pun intended, counteroffensive in the West, trying to rally support and money, because I think they all saw the writing on the wall that eventually this could all go to shit. And it does seem to be that, I would assume morale is low along with this, but it also seems to be that it is a stalemate. And I think the problem here is that both sides have the same technology, the same manpower, the same idea of what they're doing, and now they understand the other side. And so there's really not much else to do. There's no breakthrough. And one of the interesting lines in this interview, you know, I'm just going to read, yeah, I'll read the whole thing. It says, an army of Ukraine's standard ought to have been able to move at a speed of 30 kilometers a day as it breached Russian lines. The general says here in quotes, if you look at NATO's textbooks and at the maths, which we did, four months should have been enough for us to have reached Crimea, to have fought in Crimea, to return from Crimea, and and to have gone back in and back out. He said that very sadly. But instead, uh, General Zajluni says he watched his troops get stuck in minefields outside of Bakhmut. He talks about how his Western-supplied equipment got pummeled by Russian artillery and drones. And he talks about how the same story unfolded on the offense's main thrust in the South, where inexperienced brigades immediately ran into trouble. Later on, he talks about how he's thankful for what the West has done, but it was not enough early enough. And this was something I was talking about for quite some time. I was saying, if we're gonna use taxpayer money to help Ukraine. We needed to send it early. We needed to give them what they wanted. And he talks about how Western allies had been overly cautious in supplying Ukraine with technology and more powerful weapons. Biden set objectives, you know, to ensure that Ukraine was not defeated, but also didn't want America dragged into the confrontation with Russia. Understandable, but I would argue we could have given them better weapons earlier, not sending troops there, but you know, kind of playing Russia's prisoner's dilemma, Russia's game of chicken here, calling out Putin's bluff. And, uh, and General Zajuni uh, says here, this means that the arms supplied by the West have been sufficient in sustaining Ukraine in the war, but not enough to allow it to win. He says, I'm not complaining. The U.S. and the West are not obliged to give us anything, and we are grateful for what we have, but I'm simply stating the facts. He then talks about how holding back the supply of long-range missile systems and tanks 
allowed Russia to regroup and build up its defenses in the aftermath of a sudden breakthrough in Kharkiv, which I remember talking about happened also in the Kherson region in the south in uh, late 2022. Damning piece. Not because it's like a hit piece, but he just sees there's no sign of a technological breakthrough. Technology has its limits, right? There's no new drones or an electronic cyber warfare around the corner that he's aware of. Um, the Economist also talks about how the arrival of tanks in 1917 was not sufficient to break the deadlock on the battlefield. He talks about how it took a suite of technologies and more than a decade of tactical inno- innovation to produce like the German Blitzkriegs, right, in 1940. And basically he says here in quotes, the implication is that Ukraine is stuck in a long war, one in which he acknowledges Russia has the advantage. Damning. And sad. And now the one thing I would add is a lot of what happened in World War II, well, not World War II, World War I that led to you know, the Weimar Republic, Germany's failures eventually, was opposition to the government inside. Also, that's how the Tsar in Russia fell, talking about a different time after the Sino-Russian, or not, sorry, the Japan-Russian War in the early 1900s. People do get exhausted. They get angry. There is always the chance that something happens in Russia involving a revolution or a coup. I mean, I guess I've talked about that for two years and nothing's happened, though. And I guess when I look back, my optimism shrinks with each day. But... On a domestic side in the United States, you do see support for funding Ukraine diminishing. And that really worries me because, again, I think all of this is intertwined in in, in a myriad of different ways. And we have to remember that if Putin feels emboldened, Iran's giving him drones, how does Iran feel then if... If, you know, their ally Russia is doing well in Ukraine and maybe takes the Donbass for good, do they feel more emboldened then to help attack U.S. ships in the Middle East? It's all, it's all intertwined, and not in a good way. But I am curious, I guess to be devil's advocate, I'm curious if this general interviewed by The Economist is falling out of favor with Zelensky. So maybe he's coming out and trying to make the whole operation look bad because we have heard reports of corruption. Some have said Zelensky has been overinflating the numbers and trying to sell to the West a victory when he knows that's not possible. It does sound like internally there's a lot of division. So I'm, I guess I'm worried more about that than anything else is it does seem like the Ukrainian counteroffensive is internally divided a lot of internal reports kind of whistleblowing about Zelensky. Now you have this, this interview. All, all I would say is things are not good on the Ukrainian front. Anyways, that'll do it for tonight. I want to thank you guys for listening. As always, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. I'll be back.